Happy birthday, dear Albert. Happy birthday to you. Is how I recall my eighth trip around the sun after my teacher thought that it would be fun to sing my honors amid takeoff of NASA's 1986 Challenger shuttle. As so many classrooms nationwide watch the extraordinary voyage of a teacher in space. I was still riding the high from my hometown Chicago Bears crushing the New England Patriots 46-10 in Super Bowl XX two days earlier during my football-themed birthday party, where in the third quarter, the 335-pound defensive tackle, William the Refrigerator Perry, made an unprecedented offensive play at the one-yard line and steamrolled in for a touchdown. The unforeseen occurrence put Las Vegas bookies in a tailspin. Everyone in Chi-Town was in ecstasy. All the parents were buzzed from beer and my crew on cake and pop. Soda to you non-Midwesterners. Now that the multiply postponed space pursuit was transpiring on my official special day, I was stoked. It was birthday week. But... Approximately 73 seconds after liftoff, Challenger exploded. It was the first deadly accident of an American spaceship in flight. Challenger was the second of five orbiters built, and mission STS-51L was the 25th of the space shuttle fleet, whose objective was to release a tracking and data relay satellite. As I mentioned, it had on board, as part of the Teacher in Space project, Krista McAuliffe, making it a media frenzy. Because Challenger had two flights before the disaster, people often confuse the first American female astronaut, Sally Ride, with the first female educator astronaut, Krista McAuliffe. Understandable. They both broke barriers and flew aboard the Challenger. Just different assignments. Scattered curiosity, Peter Billingsley, Ralphie from A Christmas Story, was an honorary kid astronaut that watched the horrificness on location in the company of Krista's family. O-ring seals in the shuttle's right solid rocket booster, SRB, failed due to the record chilly weather the morning of the flight, validated by the two-foot-tall icicles that dangled from the launch pad. Their task was to contain highly compressed gases and were so crucial that there were secondary backup O-rings. When ground control reported 104% thrust to pilot Mike Smith, the response was, quote, Roger, Go it throttle up, end quote. Five seconds later, Smith uttered, uh-oh, which was the last recorded communication. The crew cabin, made of reinforced aluminum, was violently thrown into a ballistic arc traveling at terminal velocity. Immediately, mission control had the phones cut and doors locked, contingent of protocol. Substantiation showed that they had survived the breakup because the personal egress air packs had been activated 
and switches on Smith's right-hand panel, which were secured with lever locks, had been moved in an assumed attempt to restore power to the cockpit. The Kerwin report of the accident cited, quote, The forces to which the crew were exposed during the orbiter breakup were probably not sufficient to cause death or serious injury, and the crew possibly, but not certainly, lost consciousness in the seconds following orbiter breakup due to in-flight loss of crew module pressure, end quote. Meaning, they were alive through their slamming into the ocean and were instead executed by the immense pressure of the briny deep. President Ronald Reagan was to give his State of the Union address that evening, but canceled it and opted to speak from the Oval Office. The President's Commission to Investigate the Rupture reported that, quote, safety culture and management structure at NASA were insufficient to properly report, analyze, and prevent flight issues, and the arm twisting to increase the rate of flights negatively affected the amount of training, quality control, and repair work that was available for each mission, end quote, and recommended, quote, the additional means for the crew to escape during controlled gliding flight, end quote. Such an artifice would put the shuttle on autopilot to stabilize flight while each astronaut ejected. However, it should be noted that even if Challenger had that, it would not have saved the lives of those on board. Scattered curiosity, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, released 10 months following the catastrophe, fades in with the following text, quote, The cast and crew of Star Trek wish to dedicate this film to the men and women of the spaceship Challenger whose courageous spirit shall live to the 23rd century and beyond, end quote. In light of the calamity, the Bears' post-Super Bowl White House visit was canceled, and it wouldn't be for 25 years later until the surviving team members were invited by then-president and Chicago fan Barack Obama where, to my dismay, they did not perform the Super Bowl Shuffle, a rap song and video performed by the team with the repeated phrase, We're not here to start no trouble, we're just here to do the Super Bowl Shuffle. It's 1986. Balky in space. called the International Year of Peace by the UN, was rung in with Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve, co-hosted by the endearing Britress and Dynasty star Emma Sams and American lech Ted McGinley, with performances by The Four Tops, The Judds, Barry Manilow, The Motels, Tears for Fears, and The Temptations. Bigwig births of MCMLXXXVI include Amelia Clark and Kit Harrington of Game of Thrones acclaim, Robert Pattinson, Megan Fox, Shia LaBeouf, 
Kat Dennings, Jamila Jamil, Annie Murphy, Lindsay Lohan, Lady Gaga, Amanda Bynes, Leah Michelle, Drake, Ashley Olsen, and Mary-Kate Olsen, in that order. On the opposite end of the vitality pendulum was Georgia O'Keeffe, Cary Grant, Desi Arnaz, Leif Erickson, Donna Reed, Benny Goodman, James Cagney, Ted Knight, Elsa Lanchester, L. Ron Hubbard, and Gordon McRae. Full disclosure, I'm underlining this year in particular because of overflowing research from our last episode, Simpsucation, which got whittled down from 40 to 16 pages. You're welcome. But 1986 kept recurring as a year of momentousness. Obviously, the proceedings of the intro were the end of January, so let's reset the calendar to day one, when the Sanguine Beach destination of Aruba gained independence from neighboring Curaçao and the Netherlands. And gleaming in the living rooms of Americans was Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling created by David B. McLean after witnessing a crowd go bonkers at the sight of two women skirmishing at a World Wrestling Association juncture he was promoting. Those positioned to realize this cash cow disagreed with his visions of grandeur. McLean instead gained support from an unlikely executive, Irv Hollander, of the claymation darling... Gumby. Each live glow contest accentuated eight matches and every wrestler had their own personalized rap song, thought to have been influenced by the Super Bowl shuffle. Some of my favorite glow gal stage names are Brunhilda, Cheyenne Cher, Draculetta, Gremlina, Jailbait, Little Egypt, Matilda the Hun, Princess of Darkness, Roxy Astor, Vicky Victory, and Zelda the Brain. The headlines of January ranged in motifs from Ronald Reagan imposing sanctions on Libya, Kodak being forced to disband its instant camera docket after losing patent litigation to Polaroid, France and the UK proclaiming plans to build a channel tunnel, Martin Luther King Jr. Day becoming a federal holiday, the Voyager 2 probe confronting Uranus, and the Cardinal inductees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was yet to be built. The honorees were Elvis Presley, James Brown, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, and Jerry Lee Lewis and it would be another five months until Cleveland, Ohio was promulgated the Rock Hall home, a pyramid-shaped building designed by architect I.M. Pei. The Cleve won out over Philadelphia, home of Bill Haley and American Bandstand, Memphis of Sun Studios and Stax Records, Detroit, Motown Records, Cincinnati, King Records, and New York City, the Brill Building. Why? Cleveland disc jockey Alan Freed coined the term rock and roll and held the first such concert in the sixth city 
the Moondog Coronation Ball. Moving into February, Mother Teresa rendezvoused with the Pope in Calcutta in the most tense will-they-won't-they obloquy of the decade, Brian Boitano won the figure skating championship that made him a household name, an anti-smoking ad starring Yul Brenner, who died of lung cancer the previous October, aired, the United States Senate consented to taping of debates and finally ratified the UN's anti-genocide provision 37 years after it was proposed, Mikhail Gorbachev outlined glasnost, openness, and perestroika, reconstruction, on the heels of the Soviet Union launching the Mir space station. But the most out-of-this-world fortuity in February was Halley's Comet achieving perihelion, the closest point to the sun, after reversion to our planetary neighborhood. Unfortunately, 1986 had the worst viewing conditions in 2,000 years, as the ball-eyed and Earth were on opposite sides of the sun. Another space disappointment for me. Halley is a short-period comet that returns every 75 or so years and is the only of its kind observable with the naked eye twice in a human lifetime. It is named for English astronomer Edmund Halley, who did not discover it, but perceived its many resurgences since first recorded in 240 B.C. Its visit in 1066 was given credit for William the Conqueror vanquishing Harold II at the Battle of Hastings and is said to have exalted Genghis Khan's rampage of Europe from the 1222 flyby. A close friend to Sir Isaac Newton, Halley upended prevailing theories when he suggested comets can orbit the sun and calculated the gravitational forces that Jupiter and Saturn put on inner solar system entities. In 1705, he looked at a list of sightings and recognized conclusive similarities of a fireball that loomed in 1531, 1607, and 1682. Determining them all to be the same object, Edmund predicted its recrudesce in 1758. And he was right, but sadly died 16 years before its reemergence. 1910 was one of Halley's closest approaches in which the Earth passed through its tail, causing panic when a leading astronomer said the gas would, quote, impregnate the atmosphere and possibly snuff out all life on the planet, end quote, prompting a worried public to purchase gas masks, anti-comet pills, and anti-comet umbrellas. Today, astronomers can find Halley's location at any given time in the past, present, or future. On December 9th of this year, 2023, Halley will be at its farthest point from Earth, with the next perihelion manifesting on July 28, 2061. I'll be 85, so my robot caregiver will wheel me outdoors to see what I missed in February of 1986. 
A month later, a Japanese probe bypassed Halley's Comet to deliberate its UV hydrogen corona and solar wind as the crew compartment of the Challenger wreckage, with astronaut bodies trapped inside, was recovered by the U.S. Navy. In mid-March, Manhattan observed firsthand the Microsoft Corporation go public on the New York Stock Exchange and passage of fundamental gay and lesbian rights laws, and it was zero hour for the situational comedy Perfect Strangers, which, like all sitcoms from the 80s, had a fantastic theme song, Nothing's Gonna Stop Me Now, composed by Jesse Frederick and Bennett Salve who also wrote the intros for Full House, Family Matters, and Step by Step. Perfect Strangers was an exemplary odd couple-esque hoopla that ran for eight seasons, and the fact that it was able to survive so many schedule changes is nothing short of a miracle. Arising on Tuesday nights between Who's the Boss and Moonlighting, Moving to Wednesday in front of Head of the Class, which also debuted in 1986, and then nabbing a coveted ABC TGIF slot airing before Full House. The setup Larry Appleton, played by Mark Lynn Baker, moves from small town Wisconsin to Chicago, Illinois and is visited by a quaint Eastern European cousin, Balki Bartakamus, played by Bronson Pinchot, from the country of Mipos, who winds up living with him. America, land of my dreams and home of the Whopper. The series might not have existed at all were it not for Pinchot's rendition of the ethnically ambiguous gallery receptionist Surge in Beverly Hills Cop opposite Eddie Murphy two years prior in show-stealing scenarios that were largely improvised. In fact, while pitching Perfect Strangers with the workshop title of The Greenhorn, Creators envisioned Pinchot as its luminary, even though he was unavailable at the time, playing a gay attorney in the NBC series Sarah opposite Gina Davis. Never heard of it? Guess why? Pinchot welcomed the soft landing of strangers, but at the time, his kinsman was slated to be stand-up comedian Louis Anderson, who played Larry in the test pilot, where it became apparent that recasting was needed. Producers settled with a contempo moonlighting guest star, Mark Lynn Baker. Scatter curiosity, HBO's The Leftovers utilized Mark Lynn Baker playing himself in the series, despondent that he was the only cast member from Perfect Strangers not to be raptured. Apart from Pope John Paul II visiting the Great Synagogue of Rome, the UK and Netherlands signing a treaty to officially end the 335 years' war, and Arnold Schwarzenegger marrying the niece of JFK before the opening of Raw Deal about an FBI chief that wants to nail a mob organization by sending an ex-agent to infiltrate the syndicate, April was a pretty discordant news month. A TWA flight from Rome to Athens was detonated by terrorists. 
LaBelle, a popular discotheque frequented by U.S. soldiers in West Berlin, was bombed. And the nuclear fiasco at Chernobyl, one of the only two incidents measured at maximum gravity by the international nuclear scale, transpired. I'd go into detail if I hadn't already done so in our last episode. From which comes this overflown curiosity that missed April Fool's 1986 by 20 days. There was nothing in Al Capone's vault, but it wasn't Geraldo's fault. A melodic throwaway gag from Season 5, Episode 1 of The Simpsons, Homer's Barbershop Quartet, when the nuclear progenitor sits at the piano, mused by the two-hour live television special in which Geraldo Rivera opened a hidden room in Chicago's Lexington Hotel, previously owned by the overt crime boss Al Scarface Capone that had been discovered by a construction company readying the establishment for renovations. The journalist hoped to find treasure or bulleted bodies and arranged to have a medical examiner and an IRS agent on location in case he did. But all they unearthed was empty bottles. It was reminiscent of a congruous sepulcher opening from two years earlier of the SS Andrea Doria shipwreck, which also had nothing to show. Just like the small screens of home box office subscribers on April 27, 1986, when electrical engineer and business owner John R. McDougall, a.k.a. Captain Midnight, pirated HBO's satellite signal to protest its growing cost by posting this message in front of a color bar. Quote, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 per month? No way. Showtime? Movie channel? Beware. End quote. A lovely transition to the month of May, wherein the Netherlands Institute for War Documentation published Anne Frank's complete diary while America kicked off its summer movie season. One of my favorites was Short Circuit, a sci-fi romp about an experimental military robot, number five, that gains cognizance after being struck by lightning and escapes the Nova Munitions facility where it was built. Number five shacks up with animal enthusiast Stephanie Speck, played by brat packer Ali Sheedy, in Astoria, Oregon, who teaches him about life, while inventors, played by Steve Gutenberg and Fisher Stevens, attempt to find number five and fix his wiring before the armed forces hunts the bot down to disassemble him. The robot was controlled by a telemetry suit by Tim Blaney, who also provided number five's voice. The physical movements in real time proffered a realistic interaction between the machine and the actors in a way that modern CGI cannot accommodate. Now, we must address the elephant in the room concerning Fisher Stevens' likeness of Ben Djibouti, who was not scripted to be an Indian. Producers wanted to embrace that kind of ethnology mismatch that Bronson Pinchot brought to Beverly Hills Cop. 
In fact, Pinchot was originally cast as Ben in Short Circuit and encouraged to bring the same characterization to the role, but withdrew from the project to make Perfect Strangers, where he again was to regurgitate the trope. Unable to adapt to new circumstances, the decision was made to brownface Fisher Stevens, have him grow a beard, dye his hair black, darken his skin, wear brown contacts, and speak in an East Indian accent. Indian actor and comedian Aziz Ansari interviewed Fisher about the experience in 2015 to clear the air and acknowledge that were Short Circuit and its sequel made today, it would be cast with an actor of appropriate descent. Of course, this pales in comparison to the outrage from the NAACP at the blackface worn by C. Thomas Howell in Soul Man later in the year. Plot. A white student, Mark Watson, is rearing to go to Harvard Law School, but his rich father will not pay for it. Mark becomes aware of a scholarship meant for African-American undergraduates and tries to earn it by overdosing on tanning pills and falsifying his application. Living as a black man, he ascertains how different life can be in someone else's skin. Mark gets acquainted to fellow black docent and single mother, Sarah Walker, played by Radon Chong, and catches on that she tried to obtain the scholarship he procured for himself, and as a result of not getting it, has to wait tables to make ends meet. Once the jig is up, most people excuse Mark's insensitive ploy, but Sarah is livid. So, Mark gives up the scholarship, takes out a loan from his father with considerable interest, and Sarah ultimately forgives him. The supporting cast includes Leslie Nielsen, James Earl Jones, Max Wright, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and presidential offspring Ron Reagan Jr., whose proud parents screened it at Camp David. Whatever your opinion of the film, Soul Man was an astounding financial enterprise, costing $4.5 million to make, raking in $35 million at the box office, and debuting at number three behind Crocodile Dundee and The Color of Money. Now, I really did not want movies to dominate this episode, but how do I not mention the phenomenon inspirited by a California Magazine article titled Top Guns? Director Tony Scott was hired in the afterglow of his Nia Turk car commercial of a Saab 900 Turbo racing a Saab 37 Biggin fighter jet. Largely taking place aboard the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier, the U.S. Navy had quite a bit of sway as far as script approval. For example, the jet fighter action at the beginning was to take place over Cuba, but got transferred to above international waters, foul language was kept to an absolute minimum, a depiction of a plane crashing into an aircraft carrier was removed, 
and Maverick's love interest was diverted from an enlisted female soldier to a civilian contractor to accurately reflect United States military policy. For these concessions, the Navy furnished F-14 fighter planes at the cost of $7,800 per hour. On one occasion, Scott wanted to get a shot of a jet launching and landing backlit by the sun. But in order for the commanding officer to reposition the ship, it would cost $25,000. No problem. Tony wrote a check on the spot for five minutes of celluloid. Scattered curiosity, Scott Altman, the pilot that flipped the bird and buzzed the tower, would one day become a NASA astronaut. Music helps set Top Gun's tone, rejuvenating classics like Great Balls of Fire and You've Lost That Loving Feeling, and introducing Berlin's ever-modulating Take My Breath Away, which won both a Golden Globe and an Oscar, and two Kenny Loggins numbers, Danger Zone and Playing With The Boys. While Top Gun is a rite of passage for young men, it is hard to contest the sentiment of this analysis. Quote, When Kelly McGillis is off-screen, the movie is a shiny, homoerotic commercial. The pilots strut around the locker room, towels hanging precariously from their waists. It's as if masculinity has been redefined as how a young man looks with his clothes half off, and as if narcissism is what being a warrior is all about. End quote. While rumored to fundamentally be a recruiting video that saw enlistment skyrocket to 500%, in reality, it was more like 8%. But people were indeed chanting, USA, USA, in preparation for the fundraising event of 1986, Hands Across America where 6.5 million people across the contiguous United States held hands for 15 minutes, although it was not an entirely unbroken formation. Gaps were filled by banners, ribbons, and ropes. A donation of $10 reserved a spot in line to help charities affiliated with combating hunger and homelessness. There was even a theme song, played by Toto, that was produced by USA for Africa, which also made the previous year's Grammy-winning philanthropical canticle, We Are the World. Eminent myths in the Continental Red Rover chain included Liza Minnelli, Gregory Hines, Edward James Olmos, Yoko Ono, Harry Belafonte, Dionne Warwick, Tony Danza, Jerry Lewis, Emmanuel Lewis, President Reagan, Mr. Rogers, Michael Jackson, Jamie Farr, Michael J. Fox, Chewbacca, Walter Payton, 50 Abraham Lincoln impersonators, Kathleen Turner, 54 Elvis impersonators, Governor Bill Clinton, Kenny Rogers, Don Johnson, Ed Begley Jr., Bob Seger, George Burns, Dudley Moore, Richard Dreyfus, Kenny Loggins, John Stamos, and Robin Williams, just to name a few. 
June 1st marked the completion of the world's biggest openable storm surge flood barrier in the Netherlands, followed soon after by Jonathan Pollard being charged with espionage for selling U.S. military secrets to Israel, and the infatuation with outer space abounded with release of the cinematic flopbuster Space Camp. Remembered as a marketing nightmare due to Challenger, special interest groups accused the franchise of trying to cash in on the cataclysm. It was a bonafide box office lemon. Action! Four teens and a tween spend three weeks at NASA's facilities in Huntsville, Alabama. Their instructor, Andy Bergstrom, is bitter because she has not been to space while her husband and camp director has walked on the moon. 12-year-old Max, a young Joaquin Phoenix acclaimed as Leaf in the end credits, pals around with a robot named Jinx that takes everything quite literally, which becomes problematic when Jinx overhears a distraught Max opine, quote, I wish I was in space, end quote. When the campers have the fortuity to tour the Atlantis shuttle, Jinx breaks into the control room and activates a thermal curtain failure that ignites one of the SRBs, forcing launch control to fire the second SRB or risk collapse. Since the vehicle had not been prepped with sufficient oxygen, the miners are doomed. Andy recalls a space station that has spare oxygen and enlists one of her adolescent crew members to communicate with ground control for instruction using Morse code. But she is physically too big for the task and must rely on Max to do it. Mission accomplished, they devise a plan to land the shuttle in White Sands, New Mexico. Even though Space Camp quelled numerous reviews akin to the Kalamazoo Gazette, which dubbed it, quote, not exactly out of this world, end quote, on the 30th anniversary, the cast was inducted into the real Space Camp Hall of Fame. Keeping with the teen film leitmotif, how about the 1986 magnum opus about an adored righteous dude popular with the, quote, Sportos, motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wastoys, dweebies, and dickheads, end quote, who decides to play hooky a month before graduation and recruits his best friend and girlfriend to join his exploits around the Second City, visiting the Art Institute, dining in a fancy restaurant, taking in a day game at Wrigley Field, the only kind there was at the time, crooning Wayne Newton's rendition of Donka Shane in the fictional Von Steubing Day Parade, and pausing periodically to break the fourth wall to comment on the actions of the day. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was written in less than a week in the wake of a looming WGA strike. Sound familiar? As a love letter to Chicago by producer-director John Hughes. Practically unheard of in filmmaking, they basically shot the first draft of the script, which ran two hours and 45 minutes, and needed whittling. Hughes alumnus Anthony Michael Hall was offered the title role, but turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. 
Also considered were Jim Carrey, John Cusack, Johnny Depp, Tom Cruise, and Michael J. Fox before the crown was placed on Matthew Broderick's head. Another Hughes regular, Molly Ringwald, wanted to play Ferris's girlfriend Sloan, but, quote, John wouldn't let me do it. He said that the part wasn't big enough for me, end quote. So, it went to a relatively unknown Mia Sara. Ringwald's 1986 consolation prizes, a People magazine cover, and press junkets for Pretty in Pink. Alan Ruck had unsuccessfully auditioned for the role of John Bender in The Breakfast Club, but Hughes had been impressed by his performance and jumped at the opportunity to cast him as Ferris's best friend Cameron Fry after breakfast clubber Emilio Estevez turned it down. Broderick and Ruck had performed together in Biloxi Blues on Broadway, making their on-screen friendship extra believable. Ben Stein created a pop culture mainstay with his representation of an economics professor, which is remarkable considering that he wasn't and isn't an actor and was only acquainted to John Hughes by a channel of influential Republicans. Stein's repetitive monotone roll call of Bueller, Bueller, and his banal lecture of the Smoot-Hawley tariff act were byproducts of his riffing to amuse the classroom of pupil actors between takes. The film also unleashed onto our society the Swiss electronic duo Yellow, whose Oh Yeah is often referred to as the Ferris Bueller song. Scattered Curiosity, a spin-off interquel film, Sam and Victor's Day Off, follows the adventures of the two parking valets that take Cameron's dad's 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider out for a ride. Oh yeah. July brought the long-awaited reopening of the Statue of Liberty after extensive renovations, passage of the New Zealand Homosexual Law Reform Act, distribution of previously unseen footage of the Titanic's remains, and the first melding of rock, roll, and rap when Walk This Way by Run DMC featuring Aerosmith hit the radio. The song had been part of Aerosmith's 1975 Toys in the Attic album, which peaked at number 10. In its infancy, Steven Tyler scatted to the now iconic guitar riff that Joe Perry had been noodling with. Unable to find the right words, they took a break and went to see Mel Brooks's black and white masterpiece, Young Frankenstein and were markedly galvanized when Igor urged Dr. Frankenstein to walk this way. Tyler went back to his hotel to pen the anthem of a teenage boy losing his virginity, and was still scribbling on the way to work the next morning before absentmindedly leaving his lyrics in the taxi cab. Stephen then had to scrawl a fresh variant, from what he could remember, in mere hours. 
Now, in 1986, Run DMC became the first rap group to be in the top 10 with their Raising Hell album, produced by Def Jam pioneer Russell Simmons and music shaman Rick Rubin. During sessions for Raising Hell, it came to light that the duo was already freestyling to Perry's guitar lick in their live performances when Rick suggested recording it. They'd never even heard the whole song and were unaware that it had lyrics. Run DMC was uninterested. Aerosmith too was reluctant, but put trust in Ruben's vision. Good move. It marked a major milestone in their then waning relevance, and the music video was a landmark for escorting hip-hop to the rock-pop-dominated MTV. You see, kids, MTV, or music television, once played music videos all day and night. This one depicted Run DMC and Aerosmith on opposite sides of a recording studio wall that is busted down by Tyler's scarf-choked microphone stand as the two groups engage in a musical tug-of-war. Note, it only shows two members of Aerosmith because Run DMC could only afford half the band. What a ripoff. Though less scandalous than the ripoff of a, quote, unsettling combination of acid greens and vibrant mauves exaggerated by thick black outlines, end quote, that is Pablo Picasso's Weeping Woman, which had been stolen from the National Gallery of Victoria, Australia, after purchasing it for $1.6 million. The institution's director, Patrick McCaughey, commented, quote, This face is going to haunt Melbourne for the next 100 years, end quote. And he was right, because the painting was not insured. The ACT, Australian Cultural Terrorists, claimed responsibility with taunting letters of deliverance and must have had some expertise because they lifted the canvas from its frame using a special type of screwdriver not available to the public. Much like when the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre in 1911, nobody noticed the missing art piece for days because the thieves left an ACT card stating that the abstraction was removed for routine maintenance. The staff surmised that ACT stood for the governmental Australian Capital Territory. The expiation reads, quote, We have stolen the Picasso from the National Gallery as a protest against the niggardly funding of the fine arts in this hick state and against the clumsy, unimaginative stupidity of the administration and distribution of that funding. Two conditions must be publicly agreed upon if the painting is to be returned. One, the minister must announce a commitment to increasing the funding of the arts by 10% in real terms over the next three years and must agree to appoint an independent committee to inquire into the mechanics of the funding of the arts 
with a view to releasing money from its administration and making it available to artists. 2. The minister must announce a new annual prize for painting open to artists under 30 years of age. Five prizes of $5,000 are to be awarded. A fund is to be established to ensure that the real value of the prizes is maintained each year. The prize is to be called the Picasso Ransom. Because the Minister of the Arts is also Minister of Plod, we are allowing him a sporting seven days in which to try to have us arrested while he deliberates. There will be no negotiation. At the end of seven days, if our demands have not been met, the painting will be destroyed and our campaign continue. Your very humble servants, Australian cultural terrorists. End quote. A $50,000 reward was offered for information leading to the capture of the robbers, provoking a second and third manumit referring to the minister as a, quote, tiresome old bag of swamp gas, end quote, and a, quote, pompous fathead, end quote. In truth, McCaughey was more interested in retrieving the artwork over catching the criminals and said, quote, the people who have taken the work could deposit it in a luggage locker at Spencer Street Railway Station or at Tullamarine Airport, end quote. And lo and behold, two days later, an anonymous phone call told police to look in Locker 227 at Spencer Street, where they ferreted out the perfectly packaged painting and the following dictum, quote, Of course, we never looked to have our demands met, our intention was always to bring to public attention the plight of a group which lacks any of the legitimate means of blackmailing governments, end quote. The case was closed in 1989, but remains Australia's greatest unsolved art heist. The lead-up to September was uncommonly dreadful. The USSR's SS Admiral Nakamov collided with an oncoming catch in the Black Sea, sinking and killing 398, all while Aero Mexico Flight 498 crashed into another plane, killing 67 passengers and 15 crew on the ground, followed by Pan Am Flight 73 being hijacked, and the Cayenne Sea embarking from Philadelphia to dump 14,000 tons of toxic waste in Haiti. But there were some rays of light in the world, and they were shining upon the rainbow nation of South Africa when Desmond Tutu, a theologian who worked to abolish apartheid, who was, quote, simultaneously loved and hated, honored and vilified, end quote, became Cape Town's first black Anglican church bishop. Having learned to read by dint of comic books and fairy tales, Tutu wanted to go to medical school, but couldn't afford it. So, he focused on becoming a teacher at the Pretoria Bantu Normal College. He quit after passage of the Bantu Education Act, which sought to further apartheid authority, and became a priest. Sometimes referred to as Baba, 
father by his deputies, Tutu won a Nobel Peace Prize despite his reputation for being a rabble-rouser. Jesse Jackson called Baba the, quote, Martin Luther King Jr. of South Africa, end quote. Which is unsurprising, as Desmond won the Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolent Peace Prize in 1986 as well. When Tutu was promoted to Archbishop of Cape Town, many local whites left the church in dissent because the bishop's court dwelling was in a whites-only area. A notoriously punctual man, Desmond enfranchised female priests and sponsored gay rights by practicing what he preached because his own daughter is a lesbian. Quote, If God, as they say, is homophobic, I wouldn't worship that God. End quote. Tutu spoke out against the Iraq war, commenting, quote, If Iraq is being punished for WMDs, why not Europe, India, and Pakistan? End quote and suggested George W. Bush and Tony Blair be tried by the International Criminal Court for instigating the conflict. Desmond died at age 90 and lays exhibited in a, quote, plain pine coffin, the cheapest available at his request to avoid any ostentatious displays, end quote. But back to the Windy City, 1986, where the Oprah Winfrey Show is being broadcast nationally for the first time. She'd already gotten exposure on AM Chicago, boosting the ratings to number one in its local time slot, but after her embodiment of Sophia in The Color Purple, producers felt confident in her abilities. Oprah tried to coerce Miami Vice's Don Johnson with a bottle of Dom Perignon to be her lead-off guest, but the actor refused, forcing Winfrey to do a show about everyday people. Cha-ching! It aired for 25 years, rising to the highest-rated daytime talk show in American history. After winning 47 daytime Emmys, Winfrey stopped allowing the show to be submitted for the award. Her book club made bestsellers out of everyone highlighted on it, per the marvel known as the Oprah Effect, which caused backlash in the early 2000s when James Fry's A Million Little Pieces was revealed to be a fraudulent accounting. Having given so many interviews over her career... Oprah claims the tete-a-tete with Elizabeth Taylor in season two to have been the most arduous, as Taylor insisted no questions be asked regarding any of her seven marriages. Winfrey's couch faced the posteriors of Michael Jackson addressing his skin pigment, Tom Cruise maniacally professing his love for Katie Holmes while jumping upon it, and Ellen DeGeneres' coming out, after which Oprah said she'd never received so much hate mail. But the Davenport was most familiar with the celebrated buttocks of Celine Dion, who dropped by routinely. Commencement of the seminal 18th season bestowed each audience member with a Pontiac G6 
and those in attendance for the final season's embarkation won an eight-day, all-expenses-paid trip to Australia with Oprah in a plane flown by John Travolta. September was a boon for underdogs of the entertainment industry, proven by the obscure, unconventional, adult-oriented Pee Wee Herman show on late-night HBO that transitioned to a Saturday morning network spot, Pee Wee's Playhouse. CBS gave Paul Rubens, rest in peace, $325,000 per episode and full control over his pet project to act, direct, and produce. Highly influenced by Captain Kangaroo, the Mickey Mouse Club, Howdy Doody, and Rocky and Bullwinkle, the show appealed to kids and adults alike. Premise. Pee-wee Herman, Rubens, hangs out in a whimsical playhouse located in Puppetland that is inhabited by zoetic furniture, toys, and appliances, some of whom have highly unimaginative names like Mr. Window, Globy, Mr. Kite, Flory, Cherry the Chair, and Clocky the Clock. Periodically, bipeds visit Pee-wee be it the most beautiful woman in Puppetland, Miss Yvonne, Captain Carl, played by the inimitable Phil Hartman, Reba the Mail Lady, Cowboy Curtis, played by Larry Fishburne, or the King of Cartoons. Each episode, Conky the Robot issued Pee-wee the secret word, which, when uttered, was to be accompanied by a loud scream. Jombie the Genie granted one wish per week to Mr. Herman using the magical mantra, Mecca Lecca High Mecca Heine Ho. The theme song was delivered by Cindy Lauper doing her best Betty Boop, but is credited to one Ellen Shaw. One notable milestone was the celebrity-laden season three Christmas episode with Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon, Magic Johnson, Zsa Zsa Gabor, Joan Rivers, Whoopi Goldberg, Little Richard, Magic Johnson, Cher, Charo, Katie Lang, and Grace Jones. In all, Pee-wee's Playhouse won 15 Emmys and was praised by Captain Kangaroo's Bob Keeshan. Quote, With the possible exception of the Muppets, you can't find such creativity anywhere on TV. End quote. Wisecracking puppets were experiencing a renaissance not seen since Sid and Marty Croft's H&R Puffin Stuff, evidenced by 1986's NBC sci-fi sitcom ALF, a hairy, 238-year-old feline-eating alien life form, actually named Gordon Shumway, from the planet Melmac, who crashes into the San Fernando Valley garage of the Tanner family, who hide Al from the alien task force, allowing him to stay until his spaceship can be fixed. The playing area for Alf was built four feet above ground level, with trap doors all over the floor so the spaceman could materialize anywhere. For these reasons, ALF 
was not shot in front of a live studio audience and had laugh tracks added in post-production. Voiced and puppeted by Paul Fusco, when full-bodied shots of Alf were shown, it was a two-foot-nine actor in a costume. The unceremonious season finale, Consider Me Gone, was not intended to be an unresolved cliffhanger, as showrunners thought they would be renewed to conclude the storyline. Only later did they give closure to the series with a TV movie called Project Elf, where it was divulged our hero had been apprehended by the U.S. Air Force. Tales from the cast and crew paint a picture of an unhappy work environment. Actor Max Wright, who played Willie Tanner, reportedly hated working with the puppet to the point that Wright got into a fistfight with it. Quote, There was no joy on set. It was a technical nightmare. Extremely slow. Hot and tedious. A 30-minute show took 20 to 25 hours to shoot. It's astonishing that Alf really was wonderful and that word never got out what a mess our set really was. End quote. The day after Alf's debut, the United States Congress deemed the rose as the country's national flower. Shortly thereafter, Jimmy Carter's presidential library opened its doors, and every kid in America sized up their most intelligent, agile sibling in the hopes of competing on Nickelodeon's first game show, Double Dare where teams vied for prizes by answering trivia, conquering sticky physical challenges, and the grand finale Slopstacle Course. It is appropriate that the month of October unveiled the most well-recognized mask and theatrical recapitulation when Phantom of the Opera opened at Her Majesty's Theatre in London's West End. It would go on to be the longest-running show on Broadway until its closing in the spring of 2023. It is a loose retelling of French author Gaston Leroux's 1910 novel of the same name about a peculiar and deformed musical genius that lurks beneath the Paris Opera House and finds his afflatus within a budding soprano chorus girl and becomes dangerously enraged when his schemes are foiled. The New York Times reviewed, quote, It may be possible to have a terrible time at the Phantom of the Opera, but you'll have to work at it. Only a terminal prig will let the avalanche of pre-opening publicity poison his enjoyment of this show, which usually wants nothing more than to shower the audience with fantasy and fun and which often succeeds at any price. End quote. The prototype for the Phantom's iconic guise was to cover the actor's entire face, but was a visual safety hazard and stifled his ability to sing out. The half-visage alteration was more problem-solving than design. Scattered curiosity... Pink Floyd's Roger Waters accused the tonal chord progression of the Phantom's title song, bah, 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 
of being lifted from the baseline of their 1971 song, Echoes, but did not take legal action because, quote, life's too short to bother with suing Andrew fucking Lloyd Webber, end quote. Another prima donna commanding a solo performance, but in a provocative Brooklyn accent on October 9th, 1986, was, quote, quite possibly the most intuitively funny woman alive, end quote, with debut of The Late Show with Joan Rivers, making her the first woman to have a U.S. late-night network talk show. Joan Alexandra Molinsky's early days were spent honing her comedy chops in Greenwich Village with contemporaries Woody Allen, Richard Pryor, and George Carlin. She worked as a tour guide at Rockefeller Center before emoting off-Broadway in the play Driftwood alongside Barbara Streisand. When Joan finally landed an agent, Tony Rivers, he convinced her to change her name. So... She took his. At the behest of Bill Cosby, Johnny Carson agreed to have Rivers on The Tonight Show as a guest in 1965, which helped open doors to a writing post for Candid Camera, punching in overtime as the bait girl to entice people into comical scenarios. Can we talk? She even had a short-run daytime program called That Talk Show with Joan Rivers, and Johnny Carson was her primary guest. In the 70s, she could be spotted on The Carol Burnett Show, Hollywood Squares, Here's Lucy, behind the scenes preparing antics for the puppet mouse Topo Gigio, and directing Billy Crystal in Rabbit Test about the world's first pregnant man to less than stellar reviews. By the early 1980s, she'd befriended First Lady Nancy Reagan and was promoted to Johnny Carson's permanent guest host. When it became apparent that Karnak the Magnificent was retiring, Joan had been the permanent guest host for three years, yet she didn't even make the top ten list to supplant him. Convinced she'd be terminated when Johnny left, Joan looked for other options. And the young Fox network made her an offer that she could not refuse that Carson got wind of via press conference. When Joan telephoned to try to smooth it over, he denied her call. Rivers didn't step foot on The Tonight Show stage again until three hosts later with Jimmy Fallon. Johnny's influence and fury was such that he implored Fox affiliates in Milwaukee and Omaha not to air Joan's show as it was in direct competition with his. She was fired a year later. Her final guests were Howie Mandel, Pee Wee Herman, Chris Rock, and Wendy O. Williams. Joan had more luck with her analogous daytime program, The Joan River Show for which she won a daytime Emmy. And who could forget the extremely popular red carpet extravaganzas she hosted with daughter Melissa later in life? Quote, 
Joan and Melissa were the first people who came out and made it more of a true conversation between star and reporter. End quote. Joan's last time in front of a camera was at the 2014 MTV Movie Awards. A few months later, she died of complications from a routine throat surgery. The clinic was cited for malpractice and settled with Melissa out of court. Howard Stern's appropriately blue eulogy that began with Joan Rivers has a dry vagina was lovingly received by those that knew her well. The back end of month 10 delivered more heartbreak when the U.S. government shut down due to disagreements between the president and the House of Representatives. Then a news helicopter crashed into the Hudson River, killing traffic reporter Jane Dornaker, whose last words mixed with screams were, Hit the water, hit the water, hit the water! and the spectacle of Mets superfan Michael Sergio parachuting into the beginning of Game 6 of the 83rd World Series, nine innings before the Boston Red Sox let slip through their fingers a victory that would have broken their 68-year dry spell, a.k.a. the curse of the Bambino, when first baseman Bill Buckner's gut-wrenching error in the 10th cost them the trophy allowing the New York Metropolitans to triumph in Game 7. Lucky for Beantowners, Federal Scandal would soon bury the baseball championship as relevant news when it was exposed by the Lebanese publication Asherah that the U.S. was secretively selling weapons to Iran in exchange for discharge of seven hostages forcing President Reagan to confirm the transaction, while NSC member Oliver North destroyed documents linking him to the crime and filtering of money to Nicaraguan Contra rebels. His three felony convictions got dismissed five years later. But November was an all doom and gloom. The Beastie Boys issued License to Ill, the first number one rap album on the Billboard charts. And in the sports world, Wayne Gretzky ripened into the 13th NHLer to net 500 goals. Jose Canseco was named Rookie of the Year. Martina Navratilova beat Steffi Graf for her fifth consecutive title. And pigeon-loving pugilist Iron Mike Tyson assumed the form of the youngest heavyweight champion when he pummeled Trevor Burbick in round two at the Las Vegas Hilton. December saw Carnegie Hall reopened after a $50 million renovation, the first aircraft to fly nonstop around the globe without refueling, and the first successful heart, lung, and liver transplant. All was sailing smoothly until the MV Amazon Venture oil tanker started leaking in the port of Savannah, Georgia spilling 500,000 gallons of oil into the waters. But smoothness would be restored by launch of Eddie Murphy Television Enterprises to the tune of his Rick James-produced single, My Clearly we do not have the finances to pay for time, use of this 80s earworm, time, so now I have to do this time. voiceover to cover it. Scatter curiosity... Despite Party All the Time reaching number 7 on the 50 Worst Songs of All Time list, 
Eddie Murphy has three non-comedy albums. How could it be So Happy and Love's Alright? 1986 also marked Eddie's rudimentary theatrical release not rated R by the MPAA, The Golden Child, which ruined oatmeal for me until I turned 40. It is a dark fantasy martial arts story about an L.A. social worker, Murphy, who is the chosen one, destined to rescue a magical Tibetan boy, the Golden Child, from kidnappers. While technically a Hollywood clover, it was critically panned. Leonard Maltin declared, quote, It was a box office hit, but have you ever met anyone who actually liked it? End quote. Murphy's rebuttal, quote, My pictures make their money back. No matter how I feel, for instance, about The Golden Child, which was a piece of shit, the movie made more than $100 million. So who am I to say it sucks? End quote. Hard to believe that just a decade prior, a 15-year-old Eddie took to the stage of the Roosevelt Youth Center talent show singing Let's Stay Together as Al Green. Energized by Richard Pryor recordings, Eddie realized his penchant for doing characters and soon became the breakout idol of Saturday Night Live. Murphy made exigent paradigms out of his renditions of Buckwheat, Gumby, and Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, an inner-city parody of Mr. Rogers. Both Gumby framer Art Clokey and Fred Rogers himself found Eddie's characterizations of their work to be both respectful and hilarious. When Ed's 48 Hours co-star, Nick Nolte, was slated to host Saturday Night Live and suddenly became too ill to perform, Eddie stepped in last minute, making him the only cast member to host while still being a not-ready-for-prime-time player ending his opening monologue with, quote, Live from New York, it's the Eddie Murphy Show, end quote. After his departure for the West Coast, he did not hark back to SNL until the 40th anniversary special, owing partly to a feud he had going on with David Spade, who'd written a snarky one-liner about Eddie, during one of his Weekend Update Hollywood Minute spots. Eddie thought himself untouchable there and was equally mad at Lorne Michaels for allowing the joke to air. David Spade recalls the years-long friction in his book Almost Interesting and talks about how Eddie fervently tried to get him on the phone omnisciently knowing where Spade was in 30 Rock at any given time. Murphy won an Emmy for the homecoming appearance and eventually forgave Spade for the diss. It's a Christmas miracle. Just in time to use my favorite Eddie Murphy line from Trading Places, Merry New Year, which was again celebrated with Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve with performances by the Bengals, Smokey Robinson, the Commodores, the Jets, Barry Manilow, the Miami Sound Machine, and co-hosted by another Dynasty starlet, Tracy Scoggins, 
and the unrapturable Mark Lynn Baker, drawing an end to the year of Balky. coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.